Our sermon text today is from Genesis chapter 17, and you can follow along in your sanctuary Bible. That would be on page, somebody put a sticky note on top of it. 14, page 14. I love it when um, the reading is from Genesis 1, because then I'll have to say is it's on page 1 of your Bible, which it almost always is. Genesis 17, uh, just a a few words of introduction before we go into the reading of this. This is about a covenant that God makes with his servant Abraham. Although at this point in the story, his name is not Abraham. It is Abram. We're actually going to get into it. It is in the course of this reading that God changes Abram's name to Abraham. And this is actually quite a significant thing. We'll get into that. But some of the background of this is that God had been making or declaring to Abraham, Abram, I should say, pardon me, Abram, a series of covenants, agreements, contracts, deals, whatever you want to call them, uh, where God made a promise to Abram, and essentially he said, leave your homeland, which was somewhere in Mesopotamia, a a city called Haran, and go to a country that you don't know, Canaan. And uh, maybe some of you have done this in your life because of God's prompting, where God told you to leave your home Go someplace where you've never lived before and do something there for him or with him. Uh, It certainly has happened to me. It happens for pastors quite a bit, actually, right? Because you you end up in a community that you don't know anything about, and you enter into it. But it's not just pastors. If you've moved because of your job or if you moved when you were a child, you get a sense of what Abram had to do with his family. He had to pick up himself, all his belongings, take his nephew with him. I guess nobody wanted his nephew. And they all just bundled up and got on their camels and went thousands or hundreds of miles to a new land and set up their new land there. They started a new life there. And when he got there, before he got there and when he got there, God promised him that land. He said, this will be, this will be yours. This land will be yours. I'm going to make it yours. And we understand now the children of Abraham inherited that land in various stages. They actually had to leave for a while. Uh, Jacob, and his, uh, Jacob and his family and their son Joseph had to leave. But then they came back 400 years later in the Exodus, and they had to sort of reestablish their uh, claim on the land that God made as a covenant to their, their forefather, Abraham. Another covenant or deal that God made with Abram was that Even though he was childless, and he was actually getting on in years, and so was his wife. She was a little bit younger than him, Sarai. That they would have children of their own. And to be childless in that culture was a very difficult thing. Your children were kind of your, those were the jewels in your crown. If you didn't have children, this was a real big problem. And they were childless. So God's promise to them is you will have children. In fact, at one point, God told Abram to go outside his tent and look up. And try to count all the stars, if that was possible, and say, your descendants will be as numerous as those. Another way of looking at it is, your your children, this doesn't sound as nice as, you will have as many children as all the dust particles on the earth. It's not quite as poetic, because we don't like dust. You kind of dust it away. But it gives you a sense for the scale that God has in mind. When he makes a promise, it's on a large scale. Now, to a couple who's older and childless, this was quite a reach. And so... um, they were the problem with this covenant though was God didn't say it will happen tomorrow. God just says it will happen. He didn't say when. And so they had to wait for it. Abram and Sarai had to wait for this promise of children. And after a while they got a little tired of waiting. And so they took matters into their own hands. So instead of letting God's 
work work in their lives, they brought their own work into the equation because in some sense this was a lack of faith. They were not believing with all their being that God could actually do what God said he could do. And so they set about to create their own set of descendants through their own human means. And the way they did that was with uh, Sarai's handmaiden, whose name was Hagar. She was an Egyptian slave girl. And she and, and Abram had a child together named Ishmael. Well, this caused, of course, a lot of problems in the family because you have um, suddenly Hagar's position in the, ha- in, the, in the family got a lot more important because she had brought a child into the world for Abram. And um, some rivalry, of course, began to take place between Sarai and Hagar. And we'll get into a little bit of that later because it was um, a difficult time. It was a difficult thing for their family. So the outcome of them not waiting was that uh, God actually did make his covenant come true through Hagar and her son Ishmael. That covenant was actually reaffirmed to them later in life. But they had to wait. God wasn't, even though they were faithless, God remained faithful. And so when we get to chapter 17 now, this is God, in essence, saying to Abram, you kind of goofed up. You didn't wait for me. But in the end, that doesn't matter because I'm going to keep my end of the promise. It's now is the right time. When you're 99 years old and your wife is 90 years old, I'm finally going to make this covenant come true for you, which is a stretch. Uh, I know Hung is a... uh, you're an obstetrician. Uh, you've never had a 90-year-old delivery, I'm sure. A 45, you're like half that 45-year-old would be relatively rare. Uh, not unheard of, though. What's the oldest you've ever heard of? 50. Successful. Any problems? Wow, good. So that's, that's the high end. 90 is really pushing it. So clearly we're in the zone of the miraculous here with God, okay? Um, So that's the background, is God is coming back to Abram with basically a ratification or the final outcome of this promise he made to him before, and it involves a name change for Abram, and it involves a naming of God that we don't see too often, and we'll get into that too. So with that, sort of hopefully that piques your curiosity, let's go into our reading. It's chapter 17, uh, 1 through 8. Here, I did it again. 1 through 7, and followed by 15 and 16. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, or El Shaddai. If you read the text in your notes, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her. 
and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk a little bit about names. You all have a name. You all got a name when you were born. Uh, names, names are funny in our culture. We don't name children after what, like, in some cultures, if, if you know, if a bird flies, like an eagle flies over the teepee when the child is born, then you name that child Flying Eagle. You know, we don't quite do it that way anymore. We kind of pick family names. We pick names. We've kind of lost touch with what all of our ma- names mean. Does anyone know what your name means? Some of you do good, yeah, so you're interested in that. Others of us can go through life without really knowing what our name means. I, I myself have looked up what my name means five times, and I still don't remember it, so it must not, you know, it just doesn't quite connect with me. But in the Old Testament times, and in, indeed in much of the, old, the rest of the world, a name is a really important thing. A name has a lot of significance for you. It's very descriptive of who you are, which is kind of hard to do to a baby, Right? Because you don't know what that baby's going to turn out to be like. And you don't want the name to sort of dictate the course of life that that baby would take. So we're a little looser with, with names. But that's okay. Back then, when somebody got a name, it really had some meaning. And um, that's also true for God. Have you noticed that in the Bible there are a lot of names for God? One of the, you know, the, the most common one we see here is in chapter uh, 17, verse 1. It's the Lord, L-O-R-D, but the, it's all capitalized. It's sort of a, a hint to you in the text that behind that is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the name that God revealed to Moses. I am who I am, or I will be who I, I will be. I am this eternal, all-powerful, self-evident God who is over all the universe. But at this, in the same sentence in chapter 17, verse 1, he says, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said, I am El Shaddai. So we have two names for God in one verse. And God has several names. This name El Shaddai is an important one for us today. It means God Almighty. God Almighty. God all-sufficient. God all-powerful. God all-able to do what God wants to do. Now this name, is, it's a beautiful name because this name for God often appears when a miraculous birth is on the horizon. Kind of interesting sort of place. If, if El Shaddai appears on the scene, scene, somebody who's having trouble having a baby is going to have a baby. It happens in the Old Testament a few times. Not exclusively, but there's, there's a bit of linkage there. One um, commentator that I read said that another way of describing El Shaddai is this is the God who is able to bend nature to accomplish his will. And that would definitely be true in in letting a 90-year-old woman have a child. To bend nature. Nature is stacked against you, but God, El Shaddai, can bend nature to bring about his own will and to actually, in this case, bring about fruitfulness, bring about fertility, bring about new life and reproduction of all kinds of things. Reproduction of life, but also reproduction of faith. New life, new faith um, in God. So that's an important name for God. We also see sometimes God describes his name as El Elyon, which means God Most High. That's in other parts of the Old Testament. And in this story of Hagar, 
we also find that God is able to be named by somebody else. The story as it goes, you'll read later on, is that Isaac is born, which creates a real problem for Hagar and her son Ishmael because all of a sudden they don't really need them anymore. Their own work of bringing about God's promises for themselves by their own efforts is suddenly revealed to be a mistake on their part, even though God is faithful. And so in a very unceremonious way, they kick Hagar and Ishmael out of their camp. It's a really horrible story in the Bible. In fact, they go out into the wilderness and they get ready to die out there. But God is faithful even when we make mistakes. And God is faithful to the people who are oppressed. And God comes and finds Hagar out in the wilderness. And he says, I've seen you in your suffering out here. And he says, my covenant that I made to Abraham, I'm going to make also to your son Ishmael. So God has this amazing way of working even through our mistakes, which is great news for any of you who have made a mistake or more. That's me too. Praise the Lord. I mean, you could live life thinking my mistakes are irredeemable and are forever a blotch on me and my character and my reputation. Or you could go through life saying my mistakes are redeemable by God and something even greater can come out of that and they can be an avenue through which God's faithfulness can be on display. I'd much rather live that way. In fact, I'm trying to. That's how I'm trying to view all the mistakes I make, as avenues for God's grace and new life to flow through despite all what I've done that was wrong. Hagar looks to God and says, I will now name you El Roy. R-O-I isn't the transliteration, which means the God who sees or the God who sees me is a very unorthodox thing for someone to name God. Usually when you name somebody, you have dominion over them. So God names us. Adam names all the animals because he has dominion over them. Parents name their children because they have dominion over them. Hagar names God, Elroy, the God who sees me. And God doesn't object to this at all. It's kind of a sign that God is willing to be named by those who cry out. God is willing to be named by those who are marginalized. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's one of those really... Un, unusual things in the scripture. God permits himself to be named by a woman. It's amazing. Well, let's go on. Um, I want to read to you something uh, from one of my commentaries because it just says it so much better than I could have. In the scriptures, the name and person of God are inseparably related. This is in keeping with the biblical conception of what a name signifies. And so in the Hebrew language, the term for name most probably meant sign or distinctive mark. What is it about your name is something that makes you distinctive from other people. In the Greek language, the word name, which is onoma, is derived from a verb which means to know. So a name indicates that by which a person or object is to be known. Uh, And so if you were to look at me today, you would say, that's Hans Eric Norwegian sweater guy you know, because he's wearing a Norwegian sweater today. That's how names kind of operated. But the idea of a name is not to be taken in the sense of a label or an arbitrary means of identifying or specifying a person or a place or an object. Now, here's the important part. A name in the biblical usage correctly describes the person or the place or the object and indicates the essential character of that to which the name is given. A name will reflect the essential character. So when God calls himself El Shaddai, God Almighty, 
the one who bends nature to bring about his will. That's essential to God's character. When Hagar names God El Roy, the God who sees or the God who sees me, that's essential to God's character. He sees the suffering of his children. Adam names the animals according to their nature. Noah means one who brings relief and comfort. Jesus means Savior. You get the idea. On and on. And in fact, there are a lot of names in the Bible that are extremely descriptive. Think of the name of Jacob became Israel. The one who struggles with God or the one who strives with God. So God's name and the name of people that God names have definite meanings in the Bible. You'll find in the Bible that people change names quite often. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever changed your name aside from when, maybe when you got married. Uh, I have a friend, and I think he was embarrassed by his name, and so he changed his middle name to Danger. His name is Matt Danger Troxel. It's on his driver's license. He pulls it out. Because so it's kind of like you say that thing, my middle name is Danger. Well, he... he he, changed his, he actually went to the Social Security and changed his name to Matthew Danger Troxel. And um, you could do that. Now, actually, and, and for him, I think that is part of the essential character of him. Not that he's a dangerous person, but I've seen him do a lot of dangerous things. He's kind of a rough and burly guy. He's a contractor. Uh, I went on a youth trip with him once, and he wrestled four teenagers simultaneously and he grabbed them, he grabbed two in each arm like this and then jumped on them and pinned them down and held them there to the count of three. And these were strong kids. But Matt, Danger Troxel, squished them. It was a great, it was <laughs> very memorable. Um, in the Bible, many people change their names. Abram gets changed to Abraham. We'll look at that in a second. Sarai gets changed to Sarah. Jacob, which probably means deceiver, because he was a bit of a trickster, his name was changed to Israel, the one who struggles with God. Simon was changed to Peter, the rock. Saul was changed to Paul. A lot of these things happen when there's something significant in their life. The course of their life changes, or something comes true in their life, their name changes. It's definitely true of Jacob. Also, there's a negative side to this. In at least one case, does anyone remember who, Naomi, what she changed her name to? Mara. Her name, Naomi, meant pleasant or pleasantness. She changed her name to Mara, which means bitter or bitterness, because she had lost her sons and her husband. No longer call me Naomi, call me Mara. So she was in a new phase of life until some of her life was changed because of, the, of what acted out in, in the life of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Abram's name was exalted father. That's what Abram meant. But there was no indication there of how many children this father were to have, just that he was exalted. God changed his name to Abraham, which means a father of many or a father of a multitude. It was His name change was the marking point of the beginning of the acting out of God's covenant with him. Look into the sky. How many stars do you see? Thus many will your descendants number. And so God changed his name. Well, what does all this mean? One thing is that this covenant, particularly that this is mentioned of, all the descendants of Abraham, they number us. Now, I know not many here in, in this room are probably of Jewish descent. Uh, some of you maybe. I really don't know. 
The Apostle Paul tells us that this promise, this covenant that God made to Abraham is made true in those who are his spiritual descendants as well. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are the children of Abraham. And so this promise to God where you might be able to number the Jews in this world at around 7 million to 15 million, I'm not sure sure exactly. The number of Christian believers in this world is over a billion for sure. So can you look in the sky and see a billion stars? Can you look in a room and see a billion particles of dust? It's amazing. What a promise that God has made. All that to say is that God's promise did actually come true to Abraham. And we are the connection that to, to his covenant. We are the outcome of his covenant. That you have to rethink, though, what it means to be a descendant. You're not a flesh and blood descendant of Abraham. You're a faith descendant of Abraham. You're a descendant of the faith that came about by one of the descendants of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And that changed course at one point. The other thing that we find out for us now today is as descendants of Abraham, God continues to come to us as El Shaddai. God continues to reveal himself as El Shaddai to us, the God who bends nature to accomplish his will. Remember we saw Isaiah uh, 55 a few weeks back? God's word goes into the world and accomplishes that which God wants it to do. This is not unlike that. El Shaddai is the God who bends nature to accomplish his will, much like the God who sends his word to accomplish his will. There's something that God wants to bend in our nature around us, or perhaps even in us, to accomplish his will. We're connected to this covenant, both by being descendants of it, but also by being participants in it. God wants us to also be fruitful. God wants 90-year-old people to have children. Now, spiritually, I'm speaking, of course, right? We're not going to do that again. But he wants 10-year-old people to have children, which is also usually not possible. But it is spiritually. We are in this covenant. This is a covenant for us. It's not just for a a covenant for somebody 3,400 years ago. It's our covenant. We're in it. God is appearing to us as El Shaddai, and he wants to give us a new name. He, He names himself with his essential character. I think he wants to give us a new name. That's essential to the character that we have as God's created people who he wants to redeem the world through. But that brings us to a question. What is our essential character from which we could get a new name? What is our essential character as followers of Jesus Christ? What name would God give us? What name would God give us? We have a tiny clue in the gospel. Jesus tells his disciples... I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Servants don't know the master's business, but as friends, you participate in God's plan for the redemption of the world. You're connected to it. You're involved in it. I don't have an answer for you for the rest. Your essential nature as followers of Jesus Christ is that you're a redeemed sinner, saved by grace, And you've been gifted with certain gifts and skills and talents that the Spirit has lavished on you. And individually, you would have to decide and figure out what that means and how God would maybe name you differently or name you anew, change your name. I also wonder 
how this would play out as a church. Have you noticed I've been doing this a lot lately? I talk about something sort of about us personally, and then I ask the question, well, what would this mean for us as a church? I'm going to do it again today. What would this mean for us as a church? What would it mean if El Shaddai, the God who bends nature to accomplish his will, would appear to our church and say, I want you to participate in this covenant. I want to give you a new name. I want you to, and to give us a new name, he'd have to figure out what, his, what our essential nature is. I've been thinking about this a little bit. What is our essential nature as this church? Um, and he, I can think of a few things that our essential nature is not. Just indulge me for a second here. What are we not? Well, we're not on a freeway with a lot of visibility. We're in a neighborhood. We're kind of ensconced back here in a cute, very nice area. Even though there's a lot of traffic because of the schools, we're, we're, we would have a hard time becoming a regional church or a mega church. And I don't know anyone here who would want us to become a mega church, but it just doesn't look like it's in the cards for us, at least at this location. Is everybody okay with that? <laughs> um, we're not a church that wants to bunker down and only serve people like us, only Swedes, only covenant people from other states that happen to move to the area, okay? I heard a story of a Greek Orthodox church, and they decided to build a, a new church, and um, they asked the architect to make it big enough to, to fit the needs of 250 people, period. And um, I think the architect or somebody else said, why don't you make it bigger in case your church grows, or in case you invite more people in? And, and they said, well, there's only 250 people of Greek origin in, in this neighborhood, in this area that we're trying to serve, and so uh, we really don't see <laughs> a need for any more. They were building a church for their own, and as far as it seemed, the rest of the world could do their own thing. What I'm saying is I don't think that's in our essential nature. We're not bunkering down here on this corner just to serve people just like ourselves. We want to expand that somehow because we're called to by the gospel. Now, here's a few things that I think we are, at least in our essential nature. We're a neighborhood church. We're next to two busy schools, and we're in the middle of extremely, and I'm saying that with emphasis, extremely affluent housing. Extremely um, if you want to rent a house down the road here, it's $8,000 a month. Wow. Is that insane? It's insane. Who would do that? Somebody. People have the money to do it. It's crazy. Now, that's a great challenge because these people have a lot of money, but it's also a great opportunity because they have great needs. Money has become their God in some cases, and they will find that that God is cruel and hard and unforgiving and at some point in their life, they're going to be open to the grace of a God who doesn't care what they have, only cares that they come to him and seek forgiveness and new life. So I wonder if, and this is all conjecture, I'm not proposing anything, I wonder if at some point in time, God would want us to change some names here on this corner. I think of the ark. We call this building over there the ark. Uh, which is kind of inside baseball language. We know it's the ship with all the animals in it, you know. But what is that kind of saying? Is that the building that we climb inside while God destroys and judges the rest of the world around it? <laughs> I mean, that's, it's cute because of the animals, but really, if you read the story, it's pretty horrifying. Do we really want to call that the ark? What if it was called the family center? 
because family things happen in there. Or what if we call it the Truman Street Community Center because it's connected to a street, it's connected to a place, and we want community things to happen there. Again, I'm not, we're not going to take a vote in five minutes on whether we should do this. Just don't worry. I mean, I'm wondering if God wants us to change some names to reflect our essential character of what we want to do. What about our church? Foothill Covenant Church. Well, where did it get its name? We're in the Foothill District of Los Altos. But when you look out the windows, it seems kind of flat out there, at least until you get to 280. I understand why it's called Foothill. But it, it isn't extremely descriptive of this particular neighborhood that we're in. On a macro level, maybe it is. What if we called our church Oak Street Church to locate it in a place, at a specific place, um, or anything else that was descriptive of what we were doing, something that was descriptive of our essential nature? And what if changing our name signals that we have a renewed commitment to God's lordship over us and our relationship with him and his desire to redeem the world through us? What if we enter a new phase of life with God as a church? Wouldn't it then be appropriate to take on a new name that God would give us so that we can enter that new life that he has? Now, I'm not suggesting that we change the name of the church, but I think if we come to a place where God commissions us into a new covenant, a new fruitfulness, a new faithfulness, then we may want to change the name of ourselves and of our church. So now we're going to segue a little bit into our time of dreaming and discerning because I want to address that one topic, not our names, but of our essential nature. What, are, what is it that we're particularly good at? What is it that God has gifted us in? And go into our time of dreaming and discerning. And so if you want to make a mental note, the sermon has just ended. Amen. Let's hear an amen. God is good. El Shaddai is present, the God who bends nature to bring about his purposes for the world.